What's up everyone, welcome to episode 21 of the Noise Podcast brought to you by Noise.co.uk. I am your host slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? Oh, I'm well. It's a big podcast today. Yeah, fucking hell, we've got so much to go through, it's uh, pretty scary, man. Uh, this is a rock and metal podcast that normally posts every Tuesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, and pretty much anywhere else you can get hold of a podcast. However, uh, this week it's coming to you a little bit later than usual, releasing this on Friday this week. The main reason of that being is that me and Sam have just been like, you mean we're, we're busy people, Sam, but this week has been absolutely mental for me, uh, and I'm pretty sure for yourself as well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We've had open evening um, this week, which was um, its own level of horrendous, um, as usual. Uh, it's just a, a 13-hour day at school is is not a good place to be, Chris. And four of it's, those hours are parents spying on you. 100%, 100%. Um, sort of walking around snooping in. You have to lock some of the classrooms because... Oh. Yeah, 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 because... Um, Parents, if they're not told that they can't go in places, will just They're snoop. literally like curious children. And just yeah, 100% they're anywhere. like opening cupboards and like checking out stuff. So you have to like close off places that they're not allowed to go to. It's um, it's just like redirecting a group of puppies, just constantly milling them around and keeping them occupied. But it was um, it was good, man. But yeah, this 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 whole week has just been a just been a real hard go, man. Well, hopefully this will take you away from the stresses of work, mate, because on today's show, uh, it's a little bit of a different structure to usual because of some of the things we've got to fit in. So we're going to run through a little bit of what's going on in the news. We've got three album reviews for this uh, uh, episode of the podcast, which is uh, has been a task, I've got to say. Uh, we've got a new album from Korn, Gideon and Blink-182 to discuss. And also, you may have wondered, I've already decided the name of the podcast before we actually upload the episode. You may have wondered, who the hell is Joe Narn that I've mentioned in actually the, t- <laughs> who I've mentioned in the title of the episode? So Joe Narn is a publicist, a PR kind of, that works with uh, Nuclear Blast, one of our favourite record labels to work with. And just a really cool guy that's helped us out several times. So I reached out to Joe and I said, it'd be really cool if I just interviewed you on the podcast and just got a completely different perspective on the music industry. So at the end of this episode, there is about a 45-minute interview with me and myself and Joe, where we basically talk about pretty much everything to do with him and music, how we got into it, what it's like working at a record label, what it was like working for Live Nation and doing massive uh, PR events and massive live events. Uh, I've got to say, it was actually more difficult to sort an interview out with Joe than it was for when he sorts out an interview with me for his bands. <laughs> He's <laughs> literally the busiest guy on earth. So if you've got any interest in Joe as a person or how to get into the music industry in general in terms of a working sense, uh, listen to that uh, interview at the end of this show. Really, really fascinating. Joe's a really wicked guy. And I, I, I really love just getting to know everything about him. And one of the coolest things that uh, he mentioned to me as we come off the interview it was like I forgot that we were even talking on the interview then it was like I thought that was like 10 minutes and th- 45 minutes passed by which is always one of the best compliments you can get us when you're interviewing someone so I want to personally thank Joe now for the interview that he gave me and remind everyone it's going to be at the end of this episode and it's going to be a really interesting insight for many of you uh, up on noise.card.uk at the moment is an interview with as we keep searching as well as album reviews on mother's tomb and creeping death don't get excited, Sam. That is nothing to do with the single <laughs> from Metallica's uh, absolutely banging album, Ride the Lightning. Um, it's worth mentioning, actually, that the next time we do an episode, me and you will have seen SNM 2. 
because oh, that's we're an go- exciting thought. We're going to go and obviously see that in the cinemas uh, by the time the next episode comes out. So that's going to be an interesting time, isn't it, Sam? Have you seen any of it at all? Any kind of YouTube clips or thirty-second parts on uh, music websites? No, I haven't. I've, I've tried to avoid it, and then the moment I mentioned it, um, you banned me fairly immediately afterwards. So <laughs> I, I've. I've just I've just steered clear as best as possible. But then again, I don't want to watch some guy's shaky iPhone version of it either. Exactly I see. that, man. And that's that's why I was like, I don't want to search for it on any like clips on YouTube or anything like that because uh, I don't think anything's gonna be able to do it justice. So I'm really buzzing to be able to see this because obviously S and M, the first one, I wasn't nowhere near into Metallica at that time. Were we even alive? We would have been alive, wouldn't we? Late nineties. Yeah, 99, mate. We were six years old. We were six years old. I wasn't thinking about Metallica when I was six years old. I was thinking about Donkey Kong on Nintendo 64. (laughs) (laughs) And who could blame me, man? What a fucking game. Um, So, yeah, I'm looking forward to just experiencing all that as one. In a a cinema room with a group of other Metallica fans, I think it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. Agreed. Let's get on with today's show then, man. Um, so, when I said news earlier, I've actually only picked two items that I really wanted to discuss. With the first one being the Green Day Fallout Boy and Weezer Tour uh, that is going to be hitting basically worldwide, but specifically the UK shores uh, next June, called the Hella Mega Tour. Now, the reason why I've brought this up, Sam, is because you've never seen Green Day before. I have not. I saw them at the Emirates Stadium six years ago, maybe seven. I think seven years ago. My favourite mm-hmm. gig of all time. Um, mm-hmm. Green Day were off the back of the Uno, Dos and Trey album cycle, which I thought were really not good albums. But uh, it was still my favourite gig of all time because they played, what, 11 classics? And 11 classic Green Day songs means my favourite band of all time playing their classic songs. Anything basically pre-2008 for me with Green Day is just absolutely golden. So me and you were going to be at that uh, the show in Huddersfield on the Saturday... Did I? Did you feel any kind of? <laughs> Basically, when I said to you, "I'm going to get these tickets," was there any part of you that thought, "Oh man, like, mm, do I have to?" In in a sense of, what if they play <laughs> six new songs? Being being honest with you, there was like thirty five percent of me um, <laughs> that was that was like, "Oh Jesus, there's a real there's a real possibility that I'm like, what's this one?" Yeah. Oh no! Is, is this is this a new one? Because because my my Green Day knowledge literally ends, and I mean ends very abruptly after the final note of American Idiot does. Look at you. Yeah, and I prefer to keep it that way. Um, oh man. <laughs> so like you were talking to me about this new Green Day single, I was like, oh, do I have to? I thought I'd kind of listen to all of the Green Day I needed to listen to. <laughs> so, it's interesting you mention that because I specifically didn't ask you to listen to the single until after we got the tickets. Because <laughs> <laughs> fucking prick. I thought, man, if he, <laughs> if he hears this single, he might be put off. And that bridges beautifully, Sam, onto the new Green Day single. So, it's the title track from the band's new album called The Father of All Motherfuckers, which is out, I believe, uh, February, early February 2020. Mate, I've, I've got to put this out there to you. And, and, and Green Day are pre-2008 my favourite band of all time. But I have to say this. Have Green Day been the last, the worst big band of the last 10 years? It's a really good question. I th- I, legitimately, I think they might have been. Because 21st Century Breakdown, which actually was out in 2008. So actually that wouldn't be the last 10 years. So Uno, Dos and Trey were quite bad. 
Yes. Revolution Radio was awful. Uh, and I mean, really, really bad. There was like one redeeming factor on the album, and it was called Still Breathing, I think, which had a really good yeah. classic Billy Joe massive chorus. Any Everything else on the album was literally terrible. And, mate, this new song is The Pits. <laughs> is, isn't, it, isn't it the shittiest thing you've heard? It's terrible. It's very bad. It's very bad. It's just weak. There's just nothing to it. What's happened to the Green Day guitar tone? Oh, mate, I do I do not know. Because it, it, was, it, it was really recognisable for, like, 20 years, and it's gone away. And now, and now it just sounds like a weird, diluted version of itself. Who, who is... You're going to have to convince me that Billy Joe was singing at the start of this. Is it somebody else at the oh, start mate, of that single? The, I, I, I this haven't... weird falsetto thing. Mate, I haven't looked into it far enough to be able to confirm either or to you for the reason being I heard this once and I was like, yeah, that's me done with this song. I never want to hear this song ever again. This is awful. Yeah, it just doesn't do anything. I mean, it, it, it's it's got that little punky element at the start, hasn't it? It's like, oh, OK, mate, it's one of those fast Green Day tunes. Um, but then after that, it just doesn't doesn't offer anything. Uh, do we need... But uh, we uh, Sounds really silly. We always talk about this, I guess. With these bands, do we need New Green Day? No, we haven't Could needed they just New Green Day for the rest of no, their lives. Exactly that, yeah. I mean, the thing is, the only reason I can think why they've ended up here is because American Idiot was the massive worldwide huge success that it was. It was a step away from their punk rock roots. And then uh, 21st Century Breakdown was um, American Idiot in, in parts, but with a bit more of anthemic rock plugged in. And then by the time they've done 21st Century Breakdown, they can't go back to punk rock then, really. Because it would just seem a bit haphazard, right? And plus, to be fair, how many more punk rock albums do you need to hear from Green Day, really? Yeah, they're, like, what are you, they're not going to be doing Dookie 2.0. They're not even going to do Nimrod no. 2.0. So, what, oh. what, so why do we need it? We don't need it. Basically, what's happened here is... Green Day, in my opinion, peaked at American Idiot because American Idiot is, for me, a masterpiece. I know that some purist Green Day fans aren't into it at all because it was too far away from what they knew of Green Day. Understand that. But for me personally, American Idiot is a work of art. And after that, it's just a band that was slowly going downhill. I do think 21st Century Breakdown is still a good album. But after that, it is literally a landslide. And Green Day, I, I, I think I could... I, the, I'm, when we talk about massive bands like arena-sized stadium bands, I, I, I'd say Green Day have been the, the worst of them for the last decade. It's pretty rough. This album is out at the start of next year, Sam, and I, I have absolutely zero hopes for this. This is going to be a rough time, I reckon. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's fair enough. I think how sad has it has it has it got? Like where it's like one of the great bands of the last forty years of 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 rock music. You're like, you know what? I'm cool if you never try to write a new song ever again. Another interesting point: uh, Fall Out Boy. The uh, main support to Green Day, obviously Weezer uh, on the on the bill as well, which is cool. I'm actually looking forward to seeing Weezer. Actually, everyone's yeah, gonna like love Weezer. a bit of Buddy Holly, man. Yeah, um, but with Fallout Boy, <laughs> they're an interesting concept now, aren't they? Because <laughs> like an idea. Yeah. Um. I fucking I wish some of the stuff reminders ideas, mate. If you if you heard the last two <laughs> Fallout Boy albums. 
Yeah. I, oh, I, mate. I the last two Four Day Boy albums. But when they came I thought back. Save Rock and Roll was okay. Can yeah, I man. Say that? Save yeah, Rock and yeah. Roll was alright. Save Rock and Roll was better than anything Green Day have done in the last 10 years, I must, I must point out. Um, yeah. And there was a song called Save Rock and Roll called Alone Together, which was really good. Um, but literally, sitting, mate, the last two Four Day Boy albums have been like, and I, and I, and I mean really bad. I couldn't, I couldn't believe some of this. I think the last album was called Mania. Uh, there's this song on it called Centuries, which somehow is like one of Four Let Boys' most popular songs. And yeah, I'm it. Oh, mate, it is the most ploddy, boring shit I, yeah. I have heard, man. And, and Four Let Boy have literally stepped a million miles away from pop punk. And that's fine if they were done with pop punk, try something else, reinvent yourself, all that kind of stuff. But I, I'm curious here in terms of with with a crowd, Four Let Boy main support to Green Day. I wonder whether Four Let Boy are really weighing up how much of their set needs to lean on pre two thousand and six, because oh, it's difficult, right? Because Four Let Boy are massive now, and they're still getting the hundreds of millions of streams, and the they're still selling out the arena tours around the world, yeah. still, you know. So I suppose there's an element of like. Maybe we should play a lot of the new stuff because we're, we're in stadiums, we're in arenas now comfortably. But, mate, I can't see a lot of the new stuff flying in a stadium gig with Green Day as main headline. No. Um, I, I think I think bands need to tailor their set list for the gigs and the crowds they're playing to. But it's difficult to tell a band like Fallout Boy to adjust it when they've literally got more successful with every album. Um, well, yeah. Unfortunately, and I and I and I agree with you from like uh, from a, from a from a purely subjective taste standpoint. It, I don't like the new direction that Fallout Boy have gone with. I think pop punk bands have a sell by date. Yeah, frankly, I I think if you're in a pop punk band and you're you've, you're into your second decade, you've got to do something else. Either that or either that it kind of sounds tired. Yeah, uh, I think it's a difficult it's a difficult genre to just do for 25 years really well um, because it's not a genre that lends itself to like creativity and also a lot of the bands the pop punk bands the big pop punk bands are not the sort of and I don't mean this disrespectfully but it's it's, it's just I think I'm just stating relative uh, relative fact a lot of them aren't the sort of musicians that can delve into like other genres it either goes back goes to hard rock or rock based stuff like Green Day have done or like pop trap drum machine music, which is what Four Letter Boy have tried to do and Blink flirted with later on this new album and things like that. And that seems to be the only two choices uh, because the musicians are limited and the genre itself doesn't lend itself to that. But Four Letter Boy have turned themselves into Maroon 5. Yeah. And Maroon, Mar- Maroon 5 are headlining Super Bowls, dude. So... It, it's it's, it, man, shit. Yeah. it's it's shit and it's bland and it's not as good as from under the cork tree which is one of my favorite pop punk albums ever of the three that i enjoy and, <laughs> um, uh, but the thing is man is fallout boy have found the niche that bands like maroon 5 and 21 pilots and all these other bands have found where you combine memorable hummable panic at the disco i've done this too memorable hummable choruses that don't really offend anyone can don't don't feel out of place when they're placed on 
chart music and big radio stations and this sort of stuff. And I found a way to, to worm the way into that crowd. And that crowd are the people that that are filling these 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 CS stadiums. Because if they were appealing to people like me and you, they'd be playing in front of 12,000 people maximum. Absolutely. Um, and I think it will be really interesting to see the set list that they create for this. I mean, let's just be honest, mate. When they play Sugar, we're going down. Thanks for the memories. We'll be having a cracking time. Yeah, Dance Dance would be a good one. Yeah, I'm just very curious as to how they're going to put this set list together. In fact, actually, I do need to correct myself. Centuries wasn't on that new album, Mania. It was on the album that came before. It's something like American Beauty, American Psycho. But there was a song on Mania called Heaven's Gate, which was also shit. And there was there was a song on it called Hold Me Tight or Don't, which was as good as the name suggests. <laughs> uh, oh, my. Uh, it's it, as meh as the title. Mania is, a, I mean, task. Is, is not the word for getting through man yet. That is a difficult album to listen to. But you know what, mate? Green Day are my favourite band. Uh, Fall Out Boy are a band that I've never really seen before. I kind of walked past them once when they were playing at Reading and Leeds. Um, so, I'm all about this, man. If Green Day play... I'd imagine Gr- Green Day usually play for like two, two and a half hours. If Green Day play 11, I'm sure they will play at least 11. Classic songs will have, will have got our money's worth. Plus Fall Out Boy as well. So, 82 quid the tickets. I'll take it, man. Okay. Speaking of ticking prices, mate, because uh, that kind of leads into uh, Download Festival. So, Download have announced the fir- well, the, the three headliners and the first few uh, bleed-out acts that are going to be playing at the festival uh, for 2020. Um, Sam, I was come straight yeah. to you, mate. What do you think? We've seen this before, haven't we? Yeah. Um, uh, they, I, I, I was I was having these conversations with with Jack as well earlier this week. I can see both sides of the argument here. So uh, as it's currently split, there are loads of people that are like, yeah, buzzing, system, maiden, kiss, massive bands, Gajira, disturbed, love it, can't wait, going to be great, and that's probably like fifty percent of the download core group over there week in year in year out pitching their tents buying the beers doing that weird shit that Greebos do after a few beers like we like shit like wizards and fucking capes and all that sort of stuff but that that's their that's their crew like the denim jacket leather um uh, like fucking six or those guys are there they're in you fit the demographic fine and i get it i understand i like majority of those bands but there's another argument for at some point Iron Maiden aren't going to be there. At some point Kiss aren't going to be there. System of a Down have toured tw- of headline download twice, um, which is twice um, two more than the amount of new albums they have in that amount of time. Uh, that ratio is a little bit concerning. Is that going to be exactly the same set list? I think that it is. Um, and also Gajira, Disturbed, um, Black Veil Brides all just feels really fucking vanilla, really fucking bland. And Gajira, yeah, Gajira, 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 there every year, pretty much. Mate, Gajira, mate. To be fair though, with you saying that, Gajira, one of those bands that 
need as much exposure as they can to the to the widespread audience of metal. So I, I have absolutely no problem with Gajira. I have being no there. I have no problem with them being there. Just like a, every band in isolation in a vacuum, I have no problem being there. Right? If you turn around and said System are headlining one of the slots of download, I'd be like, cool, fine, I like System. But and then if you told me Iron Maiden are headlining one of the slots of download, I'd be like, okay. If you tell me Kiss, I'd be like, thought they were retired, but fine, I get it. But all three of them together, really, like it, it just. There's so much opportunity here for Download to be the bastion of metal moving forward that, that, that it should be. And give some of these burgeoning bands a real chance to headline a massive festival that some of them are already proving in other areas that they are more than capable of. Bands like Parkway Drive and Architects and Bring Me The Horizon are proving that they are big enough to carry a crowd. The, the thing is, though, mate, and that, that kind of leads into my point... Parkway Drive and Architects are not ready to headline download. Do you not think? Nowhere near, mate, because Parkway Drive headline Bloodstock, right? Great. And it was great. We were there. We loved it. We spoke about it on the podcast how much we loved it. But headlining Bloodstock to headlining download is like mid-table championship to challenging for the Premier League title, mate. Bloodstock is a 15,000... Uh, max 20,000 festival download can fit 120,000 people there and the thing the thing with this right with, with the argument of uh, download isn't giving or Andy Coppin specifically because he's like the main festival booker isn't giving young metal fans a chance tell me the evidence that Andy Coppin has got that if he books let's say Parkway Drive or Architects that 40,000 people will be on the main stage when they play. He's got absolutely no evidence of that. Like, Parkway Drive, I believe, and Architects may well get there, but they're not. They're nowhere near there yet at the moment. For me, and I said this on the podcast, I think right at the first episode, the absolute choice that I cannot believe he didn't go with was Bring Me The Horizon. Bring Me The Horizon were the, are the band of the new generation that tour and sell out arenas, that have headlined a festival, I was there, I loved it. They have a big enough following that they could have been a really great, important choice as a fresh new blood on the headliner. Now, Andy Coppin would have got shit for it. He's got shit loads of times. He got shit the first time he ever booked Tool to play Download. He got shit the first time he ever booked Slip not to play Download. Download fans will moan, but still turn up. However, Bring Me were the absolute... I can't... Of all, of all the bands that are playing this fest... Uh, the, the three headliners, Kiss... Apparently, this is their last ever UK show. Okay, whatever. We'll, we'll, they've retired a million times, but okay, one more Kiss show, fine. Iron Maiden, right, okay. Iron Maiden are still one of the biggest draws in metal full stop. And Iron Maiden are headlining the Saturday, which is normally like the biggest day of download. So that kind of makes sense. The choice that surprises me is System of a Down. I can't believe he's gone for System of a Down again with no new material. System of a Down only headlined it, I think... Like, four years ago? I, I might be corrected there, but I think it was like four, maybe three years ago, System of a Down headlined. Now, he might have offered it to Bring Me The Horizon, and Bring Me The Horizon might have turned it down. And if they did, then that's out of Andy Coppin's control. He can't, there's nothing he can do about that. Obviously, we don't know the, the true ins and outs no, of, booking, of booking download. Bring Me could have turned it down. But if, if, if Bring Me weren't even considered, then I think Andy Cop this was the year... This was the year to put Bring Me, subbed by Architects. And I actually mentioned this to the um, 
editor of Metal Hammer, Merlin, and he said, he was like, yeah, it'd be great, but didn't they just do that at All Points East? And I was kind of like, well, yeah, but All Points East to download is a completely different ratio altogether. And I think that because there's three different headline acts and another, like, 160 bands that play download, no one that was going to go to download is going to be turned off by the idea of, oh, I saw Bring Me an Architects, though, back in May of 2019. I just don't think that would be a thing. For, for me here, let's think of the bands, the fresh bands, that are, that are conceivably big enough to headline download. Right, Blink-182 could do it. Paramore could do it. Green Day could do it, but Green Day are doing this tour next year. Bring Me The Horizon. Um, and those are the ones... Oh, and Foo Fighters. Uh, Foo Fighters, again, were they offered? Did they turn it down? I'd have to think, by this point, if Foo Fighters haven't down, headlined down like by this point, they just don't want to do it. They just don't fancy it. They've been offered several times. They've said, nah, not for us. We'll stick to Reading and Leeds. Because Foo Fighters have been literally massive since the mid-90s. Uh, and they've never headlined download. So I've, I'd have to think by now that they're just not interested. So outside of that, that's only... And I might be uh, missing or forgetting some bands. Because I've come, I've come up with these off the top of my head. But outside of that, that's like, what, four bands that are like new choices that I think might work. Now... Pearl Jam haven't headlined download, and neither have Bon Jovi, but they're not new. I'm, I'm talking about new generational bands here. And I, mm -hmm. I suppose Blink-22 aren't new generational. But you know what I mean. Bands yeah. that aren't in the fucking 50s, 60s headlining download. So Sad that that's the only cut-off point that we can but, apply. Well, yeah, and that's the thing, right? And so I put a poll up on Noise Twitter because I was curious what people think. We had a, we had a fair few responses. Um, about 80-odd responses. So, we, you know, it's a decent stuff to be able to gauge some idea. I asked how many people liked the lineup so far. 79% said they didn't. The follow-up to that was, if you don't like the lineup so far, who do you believe is at fault for the lack of fresh blood at the top of the bill? Is it festival bookers for not taking a chance on new acts or fans for not supporting young bands enough? And 84% responded saying it was festival bookers' fault. I have to say, I completely disagree. I, I think it's like 70-30 fans' fault. I really do. Because what evidence, I'll go back to my earlier point, what evidence has Andy Copping got that... Uh, okay, so uh, I saw one of our friends say, oh, mate, it would be great if Volbeat, Gajira and Parkway Drive headlined. Mate, that's blood... <laughs> that, yeah, that would be great. That's bloodstock-level headlining, man. That's bloodstock level headlining. But to, to, to answer you, to answer your original point, what could fans alone do to put to put architects or bring me or whoever on this festival show? The the big shows still have to be booked that fans would go to. So uh, architects, so architects is a different one because no one's ever really turned on architects. Architects is stock has continued to grow. And rightfully so, they're one of my favourite bands, absolutely adore them. But let's just take Parkway Drive, for instance. Right. Parkway Drive, who uh, um, will be headlining Wembley Arena next year, I do hope that we end up going. They are a band that set up their roots in metalcore, and the minute, Sam, the minute they became something else, there was a section of the audience that completely turned their back on them. Oh, what the fuck's this? This is a metalcore. Wasn't this sound like Deep Blue? Oh, fuck Parkway Drive now. I remember putting up... Um, I, remember, I remember seeing so many memes taking the piss out of Parkway Drive 
uh, about that Reverence doesn't send anything like Horizons and I miss the old Parkway Drive. Yeah, the, so, the you versus the man who... So, the boyfriend thing and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> we've got a band here. Parkway Drive could be a bastion for metal moving forward. But 30% of the fans have turned on them because they don't sound like fucking Metalcore in 2009 anymore. So, how are Parkway Drive conceivably supposed to get to consistent arena band when most of metal fans that are fans of Parkway Drive are spending the time arguing about whether the new album's good or not? Metal fans are, refuse to move forward with the times. Bring Me The Horizon, new album got number one, and they are an arena band. Look at the stick they got. Look at the stick they got for sticking the neck out there and doing something different that I have grown to really enjoy and you liked from the get-go. I, I would say Andy Copping has got to book a band that he's comfortable will be able to put 30,000 people on a main stage in 2019. And here's another point for you. You don't like this band. right? Biffy Clyro. I adore Biffy Clyro. They are, in my opinion, absolutely brilliant. In 2015, I believe it was, they headlined Download Fresh band, first time they'd ever done it. Do you know what people did? They all went Dude. to watch. They all went to watch fucking Rob Zombie. Oh, Jesus. So, so, so I'm Andy Copping. I've booked this fresh new band that are massive, and I saw Biffy Clyro at Reading and Leeds, and mate, you couldn't move. They had absolutely jam packed that stage. You couldn't move. There had to be fifty, sixty thousand people there. I'm serious, right? Andy Copping's booked this fresh new band that have never headlined down there before. People have gone and seen a, um, a guy that's played Download, I want to say, at least eight, nine times. So Andy he's on, he's like, on this bill as well, shockingly enough. So Andy Copping's like, right, okay, that's what you want then. You don't want new bands then. You want me to play the same regurgitated bullshit acts that I've booked for the last fucking ten years. Okay, you, you have it your way. That's fine, because you're going to come regardless. <laughs> and uh, yet, when these bands all die out it might be a genuine problem for him, but for the time being, he's got no evidence that would suggest that booking Parkway Drive as a headliner or Architects as a headliner or Gajira as a headliner would do anything for the festival. It wouldn't. Um, the only thing I think that could have been done, maybe we could have done a Corn and Link Biscuit Co. headline. Maybe. Yeah, that may have done enough to keep around 20,000, 30,000 people at that main stage. But from what I read online, Literally, the main stage was a disappointing turnout for a headline act because everyone was watching Rob fucking Zombie. You're being serious, man. I know you don't like Biffy Clyro, but I adore I like Rob, I like Rob Zombie less. <laughs> Good Lord, you must hate Rob Zombie. <laughs> so, I I think, mate, I, I'm, I'm being serious when I say this, I think within 10 years, Download will be a two-day festival because bands aren't growing big enough quick enough. Because metal fans spend too much time arguing either it doesn't sound like fucking Metallica in 1988 or that it doesn't sound like their first album. Fucking move on, I beg of you. I saw the other day um, a, a post on Facebook. Someone, some of the, a, a meme that was taking the piss out of Peritrip and I thought, I can't resist these comments. I've got to go in and check these out. And what was the first thing I saw, Sam? Raining Blood's loads better. 
Oh, the fuck. And I, I was like, fucking hell. Is that, is, that the, is, that, is that the only measuring stick we need for every album ever? Mate, it's just absurd. I mean, yes, Raining Blood is better. I'm not disputing that. But fucking move on. I beg imagine you. if we applied that for everything else? Like the new iPhone comes out. Someone comments underneath it saying, yeah, Alexandra Bell's first invention was more in which improved than this. <laughs> Like, fucking hell, like, someone comes out with a vaccine and says, yeah, where's the cancer-free, though? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, come on. I've gone like, on somewhat of a rant. Nothing on penicillin. That was my favourite one. I've gone on somewhat of a rant there, and I do apologise, but do you agree? If you disagree, mate, shout up. Um, I, I, I agree with I agree with the, the, your, your point about um, fans being dicks, essentially, because they are. They're territorial and stuck in their own ways and things like that. And here's the irony is though, the irony is the majority of the bands that they criticise that become successful become accepted, and then they become legendary. Like these are the same metal fans in 1996 who were saying that Limp Biscuit was shit, and then if Limp Biscuit were headlining a second stage of Download, those same fans would turn up. And Metallica were criticised for slowing down when the Black Album came out by metal fans in 1989. There's still subsections of metal fans now. That are like, yeah, Metallica really, really went downhill from like 1990 onwards. It's like, yeah, like Sad But True is a bad song, go fuck yourself. But that, that, those subsections do exist. And I think that, I, I, while I agree with you that fans are dicks, I think festival bookers should also be a little bit braver and try and force the opinion to change by actions rather than um, simply... Uh, appeasing the Facebook armies of Five Finger Death Punch fans, who yeah. are just just really annoying. I, I think there has to. There's a, no, I get it, but I, I'm not. I'm not turning around saying that after the burial should headline download uh, with like Cannibal Corpse supporting. I'm not saying that we should just go in this weird obscure direction that you can find in the dark corner of my personal iPod or whatever. I'm saying that one legendary band, one band that isn't 65. And one band that could that would sue all three levels of fans, and there's nothing wrong with that, and that that's okay, and it won't. It's, it's not. That's not taking place. And I I think I think festival bookers, while they are a little bit hamstrung by the sway of the public opinion, a little bit of bravery. Once it once it's been booked once, people tend to accept it. Like people didn't complain the second time till were booked, because they're 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 established now people didn't complain the second time that system of a down were books because it's like it's happened so you have to you have to be a bit brave i think and establish it the first time so i think there's i think there's a bit of a compromise and i think there's somewhere in between uh the fans being ridiculously stubborn and also the the, the festival book has been a little bit caught overly cautious and conservative there's somewhere in the middle i think there. i think that now i would bet a fair bit of money that when that Reading Leeds lineup is announced, bring me a headlining and architects will sub them on that on the main stage. And it'll be another example of you're flicking through the music channels, you land on Sky Arts, fucking Iron Maiden or Kiss a headlining, and you turn to your mate and say, Man, metal's for old people, yeah, this is download, look how old these guys are. And then you flick over to something that's a bit more youthful and energised. And that's what that's one of the biggest problems facing download. Well not one of that's the biggest problem facing download. I do genuinely foresee Download eventually becoming a two-day festival, in the UK at least, because <laughs> bands aren't gra- aren't getting big enough, quick enough. It's, fa- it's fact. It will, 
we'll say the same point again, how many super size, superstar size metal bands have been made in the last two decades? Two. Avenged Sevenfold, Slipknot. Outside of that, yep. no superstar no superstar size metal bands. That's a problem. It's been two decades. And in fairness, a de- download has been hamstrung by Linkin Park can't obviously can't headline anymore. Pantera can't headline anymore. Nirvana can't headline. These are for obvious reasons, and, and that is a shame that like those massive nineties bands have been taken away. That Red Hot Chili Peppers is that too light? You know what, man? I never actually thought of Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, that would be <laughs> they've never headlined. Give it a fucking go. Why not? That's a good. That's a good shame. I never even thought of Red Hot Chili Peppers actually. Um, that would have been interesting. I mean, Red Hot Chili Peppers are in their fifties, but it's, yeah, they have. <laughs> they've never done it. It would be an interesting addition. We've got to keep thinking in new directions, otherwise we're going to have to start installing wheelchair access ramps to the download stage for when eighty-year-old Iron Maiden start wheeling themselves out. Or... Yeah, it's going to be ridiculous. See, yeah, I mean, this this download lineup, I guarantee I'll still end up going because there'll be 160 bands on there and at least 40, 50 of them I'll like. So, download is never made by the three headliners. It's always made by the supporting cast, such as this year, apart from Slipknot. It was the supporting cast that I fucking adored, obviously in Slayer as well. Um, so, yeah, that's my that's my several pennies worth on, on what I think of download. Um, I don't think this lineup is bad. I, but I don't think. I think also fans are really unjustified saying I can't believe you're not giving uh, new bands a try. How about you give new bands a try then? Or how about you give uh, bands new directions a try then? There is one thing I won't forgive about this download lineup. It's got Ailstorm on. They are fucking wank, and I really despise everything about Ailstorm. Um, but other than that, I think this is a perfectly fine download lineup thus far. I mean, the, when they add the other 150, 160 bands on. I reckon eventually, as always with download, you'll be looking at a lineup that if you're a metal fan and you're somewhat in tune with what's contemporary at the moment, you'll find at least 20, 30 bands on there that you at least like or know enough of to fancy seeing. It was that for you, you, Sam. (laughs) That's probably the most I've ever talked on a subject. (laughs) It's always download that seems to bring out the most ire. From you. Yeah, man, like, you know what? Uh, thanks for everyone that voted on the poll, but I think you're wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, mate, album reviews. We've got three to get through, man. Holy shit, this is going to be uh, an enjoyable uh, enjoyable fucking next 30 minutes. And we're so, already uh, 40 minutes in. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. The new Corn album, mate. This is album number 13. Good Lord. Um, another album <laughs> that, are, that, are on the, um, that are on the download, Bill Corn. Now, do you like Corn? yeah yeah i do i like them they're good so for me it's like because i as i've said several times before i got onto the metal train a bit late Mm. for me by the time i i'm onto the metal train corn have already got nine albums and i'm like man where do you start then um i know follow the leader uh obviously it's got uh got the life on which and freak on a leash two absolute bangers Mm. And outside of that, I'm not really massive familiar with Corn. I'm not really massive on them. I know the massive, the mega hits, but I've never really liked them enough to really delve into yeah. the, the nuts and bolts of the band. So this new album is called The Nothing, and it's a different kind of Corn than I've heard before, especially lyrically. A lot of the album is linked to uh, the uh, frontman Jonathan Davis. His wife died of an overdose last year. Um, so a lot of this album is intertwined with his difficulties and his son's difficulties with, uh, with coping with that, of course, absolute tragedy. 
I've got to say, this is the most interested I've ever been in Corn this album, so. Yeah, I thought this was quite good as well. I thought, it was, I thought it was really, really, really engaging, really interesting. The riffs are back, uh, which is really, really good. Because um, the last couple of Corn albums, there was the there was the one that was really electronic, wasn't there? There was the Skrillex Corn mashup sort of album. I don't know if we can count that as a purely Corn record, but either way, what's come back here is the not as it misses it misses the original bass player like Monkey. Um, or is it Head? I can't remember his name. Uh, but the, the original bass sound was that like thumping sort of really low where you can hear the strings slapping off the bass sort of sound that really set them apart. It doesn't quite have that. But the, the down-tuned riffs, the heaviness, the Slipknot-esque crazy breakdowns going on, uh, Jonathan Davis returning as the world's craziest sounding vocalist, all elements to strong corn material. And it was refreshing, I guess, like a, like a nostalgic trip to hear hear this album. That the, the band sound good, the band sound um, really fresh, and the the music is is has vitality, and it was a real percussive quality that's always been a feature of Corn's stuff. I'm I'm a fan of this. I think this is a strong album that they can tour with genuine pride. We reviewed the Corn's uh, last album, The Serenity of Suffering. Uh, back on our old podcast, and uh, I remember, man, I, I honestly cannot remember a single song from that album. Because I think, if I remember correctly, we were just like, "Yeah, this is corn. It's all right in it. Like it's corn yeah. in 2016 sound. I guess it's fine." But this album, like, genuinely got me interested uh, from the beginning because the opening to this album, the end begins. It's literally like quite a disturbing, like vocal take of like Jonathan Davis like making several noises and then like literally like crying at the end and i was like man i've never heard corn like this like emotionally open this is completely new and then man there's there's some riffs on this album which i am all about uh it's got um a harder and if and there was one called idiosyncrasy which just really like nailing crushing riffs yeah man and i was like man this this is the most interested i sound I, i've been in corn for like i think ever and that end that ending of harder yeah, so it's like getting faster and faster, and it's like he's. Uh, I love that. That's like classic corn, like he's losing his mind sort of stuff. I love that. I think this is an album that captures the insanity really well, mm-hmm. and this is um, a man for album thirteen. This is a, a really, really impressive piece of art here, because when you're thirteen albums in, you'd expect it just to be, to be cannon fodder by now, but. Evidently not. This this is corn captured at a, a very very emotionally intense level. Uh, this is a, a really like this is an album that like lyrically is quite battering, and as you'd expect, mm. man, I, I really I really enjoy this album. This is a, a really tight piece of work. I I think this is I I'm not massively in tune with all of Corn's discography, but man, I'd I'd put this up there with the best I've heard them. I think this is. I would go that far personally. I really like Follow the Leader, and I really like their first album. Yeah, I mean, sorry, but I don't mean this is the best. I mean, like swinging punches at least. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think this is a really, really solid album. Uh, I agree with you. I my favourite tracks are Cold, Idiosyncrasy. I think Cold and the End Begins. It's just man, that it's just an introduction. That's like Welcome Back, Corn. Yeah. Uh, punch, punch to the throat. Really enjoyed that. That was good. Um, I like Can You Hear Me. I liked Harder as well i think there's uh i just think there's there's an energy to it 
it doesn't sound like they're trying to recapture stuff. It genuinely sounds like a really nice fresh take. And I like the the return of of Jonathan Davis's open himself. And I, I obviously don't enjoy the circumstances. I, I really I really wish that hadn't happened to me. That's an awful thing. And I hope he's okay and I hope he's handling it as best that he can. But there's no coincidence that artists tend to perform very well when they've gone through some sort of personal tragedy. It tends to correlate to great music and corn when they've sound particularly great is when he sounds completely fucking off the rails. Um, did you know that he used to be a coroner? Shit, I did not, because I'm not massive on corn. So. Yeah, Jonathan Davis, before he was a, before he goes into to, um, to corn, he was a coroner. So like he, he spent, so he spent all of his time looking at dead bodies before he got into metal. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's probably a bigger Grebo in his previous occupation than now. Um, so that's always played like the darkness of the lyrics and sort of or and there's lots of references to domestic violence and 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 suffering and things in that in that the earlier songs and things like that um it's clear that jonathan davis has gone through a hell of a lot in in his in his life growing up and this is now this is no different unfortunately and i think that with corn that translates really beautifully um in sad circumstances, to really great lyrical material of great depth. It was the same with Corey Taylor. Um, when when he was fucked up, the lyrics were crazy, but really, really engaging and fascinating and dark. And I think that just suits the music. Um, this is a really powerful sound as well. It doesn't. They don't sound old. And no, I, that, I mean, that I mean, I mean, that's very band, energized. Yeah, yeah. They sound like a band really, really in their stride still. And I and I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. There's a few there's a few tunes on this that they can slip into their set list comfortably now um, for tours to come. And I think this has extended their career a little bit and prevents them from um, being put down as one of the plethora of new metal bands that haven't managed to get over themselves. And you know, um, and I think I just think this is great. I, I think this is really good. And you know what, man, I'm pleased to say it. Because how many bands from like the nineties we're reviewing albums of, and they're like, yeah, it's all right, it's just third gear, and it's not what it used to be, and it's all very. Yeah. I mean, we reviewed Sepultura. Well, it's called Sepultura, but they're not Sepultura at all. And it's like, well, yeah, it's okay, but this doesn't at all sound like what made them great, and it's that sort of stuff. And I'm glad that we don't have to say any of that about this corn album because I think it's really good. So, moving on to the second album review of the show, mate. Um, Gideon's new album, Out of Control, it's out on the 11th of October on uh, Rude Records and Equal Vision. Um, you ever heard Gideon before, Sam? No, this is the first time today. Are you into melodic hardcore in general? I dip my toe in and out. Uh, I enjoy it when I hear it. I wouldn't go out of my way to find it, but I, I don't dislike it when it's in my ears. So I kind of stumbled across Gideon, kind of by accident, uh, a couple of years ago, because I'm really big on counterparts and stick to your guns, and Gideon was basically in counterparts, he's a related artist on Spotify. So I was like, oh, they're in the related artist, related artist. let's check the, let's check these out. And I really liked them. Um, mm -hmm. Thumping riffs, down-tuned screams, and then with the uh, melodic riff chucked in over the top, and I thought, oh man, I'm, yeah, they, they, these, are, these are perfectly fine. Um, but actually, this new album, Out of Control, I I am actually um, I'm well into this, Sam. 
Um, have you heard an album that's got a lower tuning than this this year? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, um, these guitars no. have been tuned to the floor. Yeah, they have, and they're and they're used in the same way that um, Michael Myers uses a chainsaw. In the way that it's just like chopped at you consistently, yeah. like it's aimed right at the gutter. Or I, I am, I am a fan of this. Isn't it brilliant? I, I, I really like this. Um, so, so with this, it's kind of difficult to, to really put a scene on melodic hardcore bands because you do wonder how far they can go with it. But what I love about this album is that basically Gideon have picked up, okay, we're really good at melodic hardcore and we used to be a Christian band and we're no longer a Christian band and we want to write about that. So how about we just sound like the most nastiest heaviest melodic hardcore band as possible and that means that when they do flicker in the odd clean guitar riff i mean i, I am all in it happens on take me it happens on the uh title track as well mm-hmm. and uh south wind and that is where I, that's where they, they capture the most energy for me in the record and they've got a song in it called too close which has got drew york from stray from the path i i love his vocal delivery it's so punchy punky nasty um, this is an album that really gels together well as a really tight, hard, nasty melodic hardcore album. What are you thinking? Oh, I think this is terrific. Um, this is the considering we're reviewing Blink One Eight Two Corn. This is the best album. It is. It's the best album we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, this is this is so groovy. Yeah. Like, oh my god. Um, this is. I've never heard an album that's so. Like heavy like this, I'm not gurning when I hear this. Like when I'm like, yeah, this is. I'm like smiling and bopping. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like doing that Will Smith dance when Jazzy Jeff plays the drum kit in the first episode. Amazing. Where he's like pushing his arms out, like Running Man and stuff. Like this is this is incredible. This is like just really fucking enjoyable. And you talk about melodic hardcore and how far they can go. What's good is here. There's I, I hear lots of different bands in this. Yeah. I hear Strife on the Path. I hear a little bit of um, uh, Cancer Bats. I hear a little bit of Limp Biscuit. I hear a little bit of... There is a fair bit uh, of new metal in this album, isn't there? It, yeah, that, that was that was my initial thing. I feel that this... If we're going to have like a revival of new metal, which I think with Blood Youth and, and Strife on the Path and bands that have this... Uh, it's not rapping necessarily, but it's spoken word over heavy riffs that are reminiscent of the new metal downtune stuff that used to take place. Then bands like Gideon are, are, are the sort of direction that we're going to go because it's eminently head bobbing and jumpy in the same way that those really great link, early Linkin Park riffs were. Like, you know, the ones off Meteora, like Figaro 9 or like crush, uh, Pushing Me Away off the first album with you. There, there, There's an element of like, there's an element of bop and groove and that hip hop stuff feeds in. But on top of that, there's like two thirds of the way through this album, I heard a guitar solo. And I was like, I was like, where's this come from? Like, there was elements of like little like sliding hammering on sort of riffs in the middle of bits of choruses there's clean guitar elements there's it took six songs for the guy to discover he learned how to sing it seemed and i was like i was so in because i'm hearing a variety of stuff i hear a little bit of holding absence here in terms of the melody of the choruses i'm hearing a little bit of my new favorite band acres um sort of coming through here and i think i like that 
in this album, it's not like we're this band that do this thing and here's 12 songs of us doing this thing. I like it's like we haven't really worked out what sort of band we are yet. Here's 12 songs where we're still kind of figuring it out and you can pick out parts. This is like um, this is a buffet table of, of like hard rock and hardcore and metal. And I, for one, a person that I love a variety of different types of metal. I've, I don't, I've got like a favorite type of metal, I guess, but not that many. I'm happy to sort of slip in and slip out. I don't find myself going down the rabbit hole all too often. I really enjoyed this sort of uh, platter of, of 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 styles and and sounds here. I think this is I think this is really good. This is really engaging. It's really compelling. It's really hooky and catchy. But at the same time, it's it's heavy. It, it, it's I, I don't know, man. I'm 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 well into this. Well into this. I've got to say, I'm really glad to hear that because as as I was listening to this, I was like, man, this is a butcher. This is a butchering accident. Knee. This this album is. It's just so it can be so bludgeoning. I was like, I'm not sure whether Sam will find it a bit too. Um, rinse and repeat in those areas but you are right man there are elements from all different kinds of metal in this album and they've done an amazing job of blending that all together into an album that stays consistent to itself this is like one of the heaviest albums i've heard this year in terms of its tonality i don't think i've heard guitars tuned lower this year especially on the final song bite down literally i reckon you, i reckon you couldn't put that song on your speakers and turn it up to full in terms of i mean like proper speakers it would blow them <laughs> the the guitars are just tuned so low, it's amazing. They're a really, really great album. This um they are supporting uh, Devil Stray from the Path, Devil Wears Prada and Loathe this Christmas. Uh, Gideon are. Um and I am gonna be there, man, because I, I reckon this'll be fucking scathing live. Really great band. Uh love this album and I love that you're into it. So, mate, to finish out this week's episode, um the new Blink One Eight Two album, uh, it's called Nine, it's out now. So, we reviewed California, again, old podcast. I really liked California, and you you said, yeah, this is I good. Did. You said, you see, this is really good. Um, you said, I'm not as into it as you are, but, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's, it, it, it is a really good step for the band. Yeah. And we, we found it so interesting because we basically said, do we want to hear about Mark Hoppus shagging dogs anymore? <laughs> or like fucking throwing up because they may have hot dogs of ice and that kind of stuff and banging your friend's mom. And we're like, in his 40s, that just, you know, surely no. Surely just doesn't wash anymore. Uh, for, just as a, 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 an off point from that, the new Steel Panther album is shit. Um, and you've, actually, back... li- you've actually listened to it? It's fucking shit. Uh, going Why back to... Yourself? <laughs> uh, morbid curiosity. Uh, going back <laughs> to uh, Blink-182. With the release California, it seemed to be taking um, a little bit of a step away from that. It did seem to be a bit more of a mature, rocked up, amped up sound with a little bit less of an influence on piss take songs. But there was one on there, if I remember correctly. Um, it was called, uh, I think it was Bohemian Rhapsody. It was the yeah. one where Mark Hopper's like, I've built this pool because I want to see some naked dudes. And, you know, it put a smile on my it was, face. It was like, a minute and a half long. It was, yeah. it was all right. And it? I was like, oh, well, you know, they couldn't resist, could they? Interesting caveat. Nine doesn't have a one-piss-take song on it. This is like a serious rock album. First of all, mate, how great is Matt Skiba on this album? Yeah, he's he's, he's, he's pretty good. 
It's oh, mate, are, are, you not, are you not fearing him? I think he's fucking brilliant on this. Um, no heart to speak of. That yeah. chorus is absolutely astonishing. I... I... Oh, I've got, I've got. Here's my, here's my thought on the album, and I, I, it's not, it's not insulting. I promise. That's okay, right. Sam. <laughs> you are Mr. Cynical, after all. I do expect this right. from you. I can I, can I say, can I say this categorically. This album has some fucking great songs on it. It right? does. Some brilliantly written choruses, songs of depth, some great guitar lines, and really great melodies. Right? With me so far. Yeah. I wish, I wish Matt Hoppus wrote songs for other bands to sing. Oh, you don't like Mark's vocals? I I think they're great. They're great songs that he can't carry off anymore. I I, I think and Matt Skiba's got an okay voice, but let's be honest, he's limited as a vocalist. He has he has one range, and it's that oh, and and that's it. There's no variation. <laughs> he's got one. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I do. Well. I do actually. He's, yeah. They've both got one key, and luckily they're different because otherwise it'd be a fucking disaster. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point, actually. Yeah, but. If Mark Hoppus wrote this album, knocks on the State Champs studio and says, sing these, they'd be headlining arenas tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. If, if Mark Hoppus wrote these songs and gave them to um, uh, the the Four really great vocalist. Yeah, yeah, or the, the great vocalist from Panic! at the Disco. Or Brendan Urie. Brendan Urie. Give, imagine giving Hung Over You to Brendan Urie with his yeah. voice. Okay, man. Yeah, I see where we're going here. So yeah. um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is these these songs are brilliant with depth and meaning. The lyrics are okay. bit cheesy at times and a bit like, here's this word. Here's the opposite of this word. Let's put them together and try and make a sentence out of it. Remember to forget me. Cool. Um, <laughs> oh, doesn't make man. sense. We'll move on. That's fine. You haven't been to school for 25 years. That's okay. I get it. Um, but... Um, they're great vocal melodies, really great vocal melodies, but the band aren't good enough to sing them. I'm sorry, they're not. The vocals, the vocals aren't very good. Uh, they're, they're they're carried by the melody. It's like I don't know, it's like hearing karaoke, like of Wonderwall, sung by someone who's okay at singing. And it's like, oh, the song's great though, isn't it? And it, it's just, and that that's what the thing is here. I think. There were like four or five really, really great songs on this album. I wish I, I wish I, I wish I hated you. I, I really, I think he's great, and I think you could, you could give that to any pop singer at any point, and that would be a number one hit record. But it, it, if you give, if, if you gave Hung Over You to Panic at the Disco, it'd be massive. If you give State Champs this album, they would be huge. I think the songs are absolutely fantastic, uh, but Mark Hoppers cannot sing anymore. And it, you can, if you listen very, if you listen to it, you can hear that these vocals have been pulled into tune. You can hear yeah, you, it. You can tell a lot of effects have been put on. Mark this Hoppers. is this is vo- this is vocoded to fuck. And because they're not a punk band anymore that can sing about girls' dicks or whatever or what pizza or giving a dog a blowjob or whatever the fuck they used to sing about in 1997, it, you can't sing like a teenager or sound like a teenager about songs. That actually have depth the melody needs to carry. Now I think this is a very good, well written album. And I think even Travis Barker has decided to take take a chill. I was gonna say that. He's he's the least memorable I've ever heard him. There's there's moments. Like there's a bit there's that song where they let him play at the end. Yeah. And it feels like, oh go on, go on, Travis, we'll let it run for thirty seconds. Um but like he I don't I don't mind it. Like I don't think it's sit here thinking, oh, I wish I heard more Travis Barker. If I want to find Travis Barker drum solos, there's like 
35 on YouTube, I can find now. But he seems to have been very content to let the songs breathe as well. Rather than, I think in the, the excitement of them all being back together, I think Travis Barker was like a dog in heat for like 12 songs and was really letting himself go. But on this, he, he seems to let the songs carry, and I think that really works. And I think these songs are very, very good. I just don't think Blink-182 are good enough to perform them. I actually really like Matt Skaber on this album. I think I think he carries this. I think he's a difference maker. Where oh, usually... he's, he's better than Mark Hoppus. Oh, I absolutely agree. He's better than Mark Hoppus in this. I, I agree that he's the difference maker here. Where usually the difference maker is Travis, of course. Yeah. And I've said to you before, is Travis the best member of uh, the single member of a band like in music and you were like yeah unless you were talking about like fucking um what was it you said um fucking Jimi hendrix and the band that come with him yeah like, yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely, he, he's, yeah. He, he's the absolute best musician solo musician in a band um so usually it's travis making this but i actually think it's skiba that makes a difference on this and i wasn't particularly massive on alkaline trio the band that he came from but i think songs like dark side uh blame it on my youth i mentioned no heart to speak of the chorus on no heart to speak of is amazing and even the opening track the first time i, I think skiba's a difference making here I, I really like his vocals on this you are correct uh, it's one pitch and one, style, and, and one style. But I think he carries it well. At this point, Blink-182, there couldn't be, like like you said, a punk band talking about dogs' dicks anymore because it just doesn't wash. So this is like a serious album that addresses like anxiety, depression, breaking up with uh, loved ones, losing loved ones. And I think they've carried this really well. I, I'm not sure whether this is like the best we could have hoped for for Blink-182 by the ninth album. But I'll tell you what, I'll take it 100%. Because, mate, that last album I had Tom DeLonge on, Neighbourhoods, <laughs> was pretty bad. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I, Blink and I mean 2 are coming bad. out of this divorce much better. Yeah. Like, Mark Hopper's got the kids, the house, the dog, the bookcase, the new car, and Tom DeLonge's just sitting in his mum's basement talking about aliens. Yeah. That, that, is, that is how this is going. This is 100% win for Mark Hopper's. Yeah. But. There is a definite, definite noticeable shift that a lot of effects have been put on Mark. Um, but I think it's like Blink have always had two vocalists. So yeah. unless, interesting thought here, unless for Blink's next album in a few years, if they're still going, and they say we'll do one more, unless Mark just plays bass and he says to Tom, mate, I can't do this anymore, the vocals. I'll just drop the bass lines in. How about you and Skiba do it? Would you be up for that? I, I think I fancy that a lot. So is this a purely Skiba or is it like a Skiba Tom? I'd say Skiba, Skiba and Tom. And then Mark's, Mark's doing the bass lines. Yeah. And obviously Travis is slaying it on the drums. Now, I've said to you before, I don't think Mark's actually a great bass player, to be honest. Is Mark's greatest contribution to Blink quite out to his Twitter account? <laughs> Which is hilarious, I must it's say. It's fantastic. <laughs> and... Um, to be fair, some of Mark's vocal spins in uh, earlier in Blink's career, I do love. For example, the chorus on Feeling This. Come on, man. In- incredible. Absolutely incredible. And what's my age again? His performance oh, on that song mate, is, is, yeah. is gorgeous. And um, do the Kids for Christmas, Parents for Christmas, the, the Christmas divorce song. Every Time I Look for You as well. Just, just Every Time the, I Look, yeah. He's the, great. He's great. Yeah. The, Mark Hoppus has vocally worn out now. And this album is a clear indication of that. But yeah. 
as a whole, I really, really like this album. And I think... Can't quite say it's the best we could have hoped for, but it's not far off. I am pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoy this. Because I've got to ask you, Sam. Did you know this was coming out? Because no. I've seen, seen, literally... I knew there was the Blink album coming out at some point this year, but I've seen such little press about it. Like California, that came out in 2017, you couldn't move for that album. It was everywhere. It was publicised everywhere. New Blink album, new Blink album. Obviously, it was the, it was their return album, and it was the album with a new um, with a new member, uh, Matt instead of Tom. But here, knowing like it, there was, it was very. If it was publicised, I was completely missing it. So I completely forgot it was coming out. So I've got to say, I'm pleasantly surprised by this album. This is a a really solid, strong album. Uh, I I think everyone on earth should listen to No Heart to Speak of. I think that that song is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Hungover You is my personal highlight. I think it's terrific. Yeah, you right, you know, drop Brendan Urie on that Hungover You chorus and that's a real game changer. Give Give it like three weeks, right? And then search for... Insert name of Blink-182 song off new album, acoustic cover on YouTube, and it's going to be full of banging versions. Yeah. It's, it's going to be there. It's it, Those songs are really, really great. So what it means is that Mark Hoppers has, a, has 10, 15 years ahead of him in this, in this music business, if he ever wants it. But I don't know, man. I just, yeah, like I said, just give them a, give them someone else or ask them someone else. I think, I think there's just... So, I don't know. The, the songs are fantastic. I, that, that's my final thing. The songs are fantastic. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to say that. So that's it for this episode of the Noise Podcast. That was uh, including the interview that you're about to hear in a moment. It's going to be a long one for you. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, on the next episode, I'm going to enjoy it because I have literally just received the new Menzingers album, Sam. Oh. So, going to be dropping that your way and we will be reviewing that on uh, the next episode i believe it's already going to be out by that time let me just double check um next week's the third yeah by the time we actually do the next episode the menzingers album is already going to be out however i still just demand that we <laughs> that we review it because i love the band so much i'll find another band that, uh, that i've got new album coming out and i'll drop that in there as well so stick around because my interview with joe Nant is following straight after this on next week's episode an episode in two weeks we're going to be reviewing the new album from the menzingers and whatever else i fancy torturing or pleasing sam with can't wait Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Stick around for the chat with Joe Narn. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Joe Narn, a music publicist for Nuclear Blast. Mate, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm very good. How are you? Mate, I'm, I am wicked. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, first thing, oh, mate, pleasure. I've got I've got to find out, what's it like you doing an interview for once instead of you sorting out interviews for someone else? You know what? I was just thinking this like an hour ago. It's really surreal. Um, and I feel like... Maybe I'm now going to feel, you know, get to experience what I'm inflicting on all of these poor bands that I work with. <laughs> you know what, mate? It's funny you should mention that. It's been harder to, in, to get this sorted with you than with the bands. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, had a, you had a crazy summer, right? Yeah, mental. Um, ridiculous amount of stuff going on, which is a good thing in my eyes. I like to stay busy. Um, but yeah, we've as a company, we've had a pretty wild few months, to be honest. You went to Reading, if I remember correctly. I didn't actually make it to Reading in the end. Oh, no, dude. yeah, gutted about it. Uh, I'm guessing that's one of the one of the downfalls of the industry that you're in, right? Sometimes it's just too busy for you to be able to feasibly do what you want to do. Yeah. 
Sometimes, yeah. But I mean, it's not really something I can complain about. <laughs> well, no, because <laughs> I'm normally missing out for something else that's, that's super yeah. cool. So, uh, yeah. Let's start at the beginning, man. <clears throat> Let's go right back to the start. Uh, when was the first time that you remember noticing music was something that you had an interest in more than just what was playing on the radio at the time? So it's a bit of a weird one, really. Um, when I was super young, my dad used to play a lot of music in the car and stuff because my dad's always been a proper muser as well. Um, and I never took proper notice of it, but I, I always really enjoyed it and never really like made the connection, as silly as that might sound. So I remember my dad playing like Daft Punk records and early Linkin Park and like all sorts of stuff. But it wasn't until I hit about 16 which I know is super late for getting into music compared to most people, when um, I was just scrolling through YouTube one day and I saw the video for Wait and Bleed by Slipknot. And uh, there was a bunch of kids at my secondary school that were like the metal kids. And I was always like, I was one of those people that was like, oh, it's a bit weird though, isn't it? Like it's just screaming and noise and like, I can't believe you're listening to that stuff. So I think I clicked on it out of like morbid curiosity. And then, the, you know, the song ended and I was like, actually, that was kind of cool. Like, I don't really know what just happened, but I'm kind of into that. And then somehow over the next like six months to a year, I just fell headfirst into like started off being heavier music, um, but more kind of like mainstreamy generic stuff. So like your Slipknot's, your Avenged, Bullet For My Valentine, all of that kind of stuff. And then it just slowly escalated to the point that I'm at now where it's like anything and everything, all genres as extreme as things go, as quiet as things go, as mainstream as things go, like I just consume as much as I can. It's interesting you mention that because literally like your Twitter is one of the most fascinating musical landscapes <laughs> on earth. Like some some days I see you talking about like the, the heaviest of death metal bands and then the next day you're talking to Dua Lipa. And I'm like, this is awesome, man. Your, your musical like, escape is so massive. Um, yeah. When you... I, mean, I was going to say like there was a long time where I was super like, I did. I was absolutely one of those like super judgmental music fans, where I was like, either like, how can you listen to this? It's so heavy. It's so stupid. Blah blah blah. Or I was like, oh, all of that like trap mumble rap stuff sucks. Like it's just. And I hit a point where I was like, I don't see the point in being so picky. I'm just going to give stuff a go. And as soon as I started doing that, I realised actually there's loads and loads of stuff from all sorts of different genres that. I can get into even if it's just like a passing interest of like if it's on in the background or whatever like yeah and it just opens you up to so much more stuff that you wouldn't find otherwise what was the first band you remember ever for or artist in general that you remember ever like really falling in love with oh Slipknot for sure yeah Slipknot was the one after seeing that video um it was like I fully this was back in the day when uh I used to illegally download music which i absolutely do not do anymore <laughs> um and i just remember downloading their entire discography and just diving in and just like it was cool for me at that time to see a band that was doing which now seems a bit silly because what slipknot do in the grand scheme of things is fairly straightforward but them doing like you know the super heavy stuff like your disaster pieces and like people equal shit and stuff like that but then they also have these like like the stuff from the first album, stuff like Purity and Frail and Nursery and stuff where it's like slow and creepy and dark. But then they also like later in their career on Volume 3 and on All Hope is Gone, they kind of went into like ballads. Um, I seem to be one of the few people that actually really like Slipknot ballads. Um, 
my favorite song on the gray chapter was kill pop which is obviously one of the more kind of chilled songs but yeah i just like i got completely obsessed watched like every interview every live show and just like consumed as much as i could of anything slipknot related for years so was your was your <clears throat> dad like into Slipknot and the more extreme elements of music? Because I, I know you said that uh, Slipknot are one of your more mainstream metal bands now, but that first album is certainly uh, uh, not mainstream. Mate, so no, not at all. Like absolute. I mean, they're one of those bands that I still like. You put the, you put on that first record, like you say, or you put on Iowa, and it's like it still rips so hard. I even think the new one is like considering you know it's a band what 20 years into their career is super heavy oh mate yeah um, i love we are not your kind that's oh, wicked yeah i don't understand the people that are uh shitting on it but whatever that's for another time um no actually my dad wasn't ever really into like super heavier stuff um <clears throat> he was kind of into stuff like sabbath from when he was growing up and like more like acdc and like classic rock hard rock kind of stuff but um it's actually been quite cool because when I started properly getting into music, I got a lot of stuff from his music collection that I started to get into. So stuff like The National or, like I say, like Daft Punk from when I was younger that I, I still absolutely love. But then it kind of went the other way. So now that I'm into, like, all sorts of weird, heavier music, it's a world that he'd never really explored. So I've kind of opened up his taste to a whole bunch of stuff, like to the point where... He's now seen Slipknot a couple of times. He's bought tickets for the next Slipknot tour. He's seen Conjurer twice. Like, uh, we went to see Napalm Death in Leicester last weekend. Like, so it's kind of cool. It's been like a nice little two-way thing. That is amazing. Um, because my dad uh, was into metal. Like, he's like into like 70s metal though, like uh, Black Sabbath. Yeah. And like Rush nice. and that kind of stuff. So like... When I was getting into, cause a bit similar to yourself, actually, when I was like 16, I got onto the Yumi Six Paramore All Time Low bandwagon, uh -huh. and then I got progressively heavier. Whereas you started with sitting on <laughs> self-titled record, which is quite impressive in itself. Um, and my dad was when I was once I started getting into the really heavy <clears throat> screaming stuff. My dad was like, "You don't listen to that shit, man. That's not real metal." So like, my dad is not mm -hmm. he's not for convincing, man. He's well set. If it's not Black Sabbath or it's not Iron Maiden at the heaviest, uh, then it's not music. Um, but so you've been able to like. <laughs> Convene, like twist your dad onto a completely new style of music which i've got to say i don't think i've ever heard anyone say ever it's usually the <laughs> child in the child inherits from the parents right <clears throat> yeah it's it's really it's a really weird one so like like i say like my dad's like a proper music obsessive like been running a music quiz in leicester for like seven years he's got literally he's literally got books of just like every number one of all time he knows like everything but i guess just this like when this whole you know, heavier, like, you know, when, when screaming started becoming a thing in heavier music in, let's say, the early 90s, mid 90s, yeah. I guess it was just never a thing he got onto. And for that reason, like, it's always been a bit of a black spot in his knowledge and taste and stuff. Um, so it's just been cool. Like, um, I remember kind of the first way I started doing it is, again, back when I was like 16, 17, I used to make him like mix CDs for the car. Um that would have everything from like, I remember putting a Blackstone Cherry song on one of them, which is really weird because I don't listen to Blackstone Cherry at all now. Um, but like Skin Dread and Parkway Drive and A Day to Remember, who are also like a massively important band for me. Um, and just like all sorts of weird stuff. And then being like, picking out the bits he liked and then trying to 
steer things in that direction. And then it started being a thing where for like his birthday or Christmas or whatever, um, he's one of those people that's just impossible to buy for. Like either he doesn't want anything or if he wants it, he's already gone and got it for himself. So I just started doing a thing, which I've kind of kept up to this day, where I would just find like three, four CDs that I was like, I think he might be into this band and I just buy him the CDs. I think the first time I did it, I got in White Pony by Deftones, which is my favorite album ever. Uh, Shape of Punk's Come by Refused. Black is Beautiful by Let Live. And there was one other one that I can't remember. But um, Dude, you don't yeah, need to remember the there, it's just That was yeah, three I albums, mean, all absolutely sly. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I was like, I feel like there's some, there's got to be some, they're all quite accessible in their own way. It's got to be something in there that you'll, you'll latch onto and then, you know, take it from there. But yeah, he's just super open-minded. So like, like I say, he'll come and watch Napalm Death with me. He came away from it being a bit like, I don't really know if I got that. That was a bit much, which I think is fair. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we also went to the Enchikari back in January and he was like, it's one of the best shows he's, he said he's ever seen. And yeah, it's just cool. It's like a, it's a nice thing to get to share with, you know, someone that essentially initially planted that, um, thing for music in my head when I was really young without even realising, which makes it sound really weird, but you know what I mean. So if you were 16 when you first cottoned on to, oh, this is actually awesome, uh, how mm-hmm. old were you when you thought, you know what, I'd like to do this. I'd like to at least be a part of this industry for a living. <clears throat> yeah, that was a bit of a weird one as well. Um, it was never really like something I'd initially set my eyes on. Um, kind of the way it's all happened has all been a little bit... Uh, fluky i guess but basically i was at college doing my a levels and i was like this sucks i hate this i don't want to be doing this so i dropped out of college and then my parents obviously were like look if you're going to drop out of college you've got to get a job do something i was like okay fine so i found an apprenticeship in it because i was like i can kind of do it like it was one of the a levels i was doing it's like you know it's a career that pays well like let's give it a shot did this apprenticeship for like a year and a half um, <clears throat> and then again, just kind of reached a point where I was like, I'm getting nothing out of this. Like, I, you know, I don't want to be doing this. Um, and I was like, look, I'm fairly young. Like I was like 18, I guess, maybe I was like, I'm at a position, I'm in a position where I can take a bit of a risk. And if it all goes tits up, it's not the end of the world. I've not got anyone relying on me or anything like that. So I was like, in my head, I was like, if I could do anything, what would I actually want to do? And the one thing that always came back to is music because the music is the only thing I've ever really, truly been like invested in. And yeah, it kind of just went from there. I then went into like researching different jobs in music, which ones I thought appealed to me, which ones uh, kind of fit my personality and my characteristics and stuff and went from there. And your first job in the music industry, when I first... um... (coughs) <coughs> encounters isn't the right word but i can't think of anything better for the time being <laughs> yeah uh, when i first encountered you i actually you, i saw you talking about malevolence and i tweeted i was like yeah i was like you know what? i've never really listened to them are they good you were like mate they're amazing what you're doing you've got to get on malevolence man yeah. uh, and a yeah. friend a friend of ours a don i had just sent me uh the link for the for the new album self supremacy so i thought oh man i'll give this a go and it was absolutely amazing i was like this band are fucking awesome and joe is 100 <laughs> right so i started really like paying attention to your opinion but at that time i feel i think if i remember correctly you were doing something with live nation 
Yeah. Was that your so, first job in the industry? That was actually my first job, yeah. Oh, man, Which awesome. is surreal, yeah. yeah. Like, I still to this day, I'm like, the fact I managed to land that is baffling to me. Like, it's, it's yeah, insane. Um, the way it kind of all happened was, um, so like I say, I was doing this apprenticeship that I was a bit, like, dead end, like, didn't want to be there. So I was looking into how to get into music, reading a lot of blogs and stuff. And everyone was saying, look, you've got to do an internship. You've got to pay your dues, like all this sort of thing. And I was like, okay, cool. Let me try and find an internship. Spent absolutely ages, like months and months and months looking for an internship. Because as anyone that's tried to get into music knows, they are few and far between at the best at times. Um, One came up for a company called Impressive PR, which at the time, I'll be honest, I'd never heard of um but i was like it's got pr in the title that's what i want to do like let's go for it apply for it managed to get this three-month internship in london and i was lucky enough like and again like this was a huge help uh my parents said look we'll support you for three months if you want to move down to do this internship because they saved up some money over the years and stuff for me because i always said i wanted to go to university but obviously that didn't happen so like, we'll support you for your rent and like food and everything for three months. After that, you're kind of on your own. I was like, okay, cool. Let me go and do this. See what happens. Give it a shot. So I moved down to London. Um, again, was lucky enough that my, we had like a family friend who was living in London for university. He was back home for the summer. So I rented out his room for like half the rent for three months. So again, that also was like a massive helping hand. You know, a lot of like right place, right time kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, moved down, did this internship with impressive, which was a lot of working with like comedians, um, and a lot of like kind of heritage music acts. So we did stuff with like the Osmonds and like, um, one of the guys from curiosity killed a cat, like a lot of like eighties revival stuff, which was, you know, not something I really had a fashion for. Yeah, it was a weird one, but, um, it was experience and that was all I wanted at that time. Um, that wrapped up and I was like, okay, cool. I've got to go and find a job now. So, and what I, what I did immediately is I went and worked in Chipotle for five months, which was actually sick because I got to eat Chipotle every day and I was, I was happy with that. Um, but again, that was like a stopgap for me. I was like, you know, this obviously isn't what I want to be doing. So I was constantly on the lookout for other stuff, jobs in music, um, anything that I thought just appealed to me, anything that caught my eye. And one day, uh, actually through Twitter, Charlie Beezer, he used to head up PR at Live Nation, who is Terry Beezer's wife, who a lot of people might know, because obviously he's like a broadcaster, he used to be on the radio and stuff. Um, <clears throat> she tweeted about this job going at Live Nation for a press assistant, and the uh, requirements were like, you know, a uh, couple of years experience, like relevant degree would be preferred and all this stuff. And I was like, I don't have any of this stuff. But I was like, if I don't apply for it, there's literally no chance in hell I'm going to get it. So I was like, I'll apply, not get my hopes up, whatever. Somehow managed to get an interview, went along. As with um, My interview was with Charlie and another woman called Joe Young, who was the head of um, marketing at the time. I believe that was her title anyway. She now works at Ticketmaster. Um, and we just, we just clicked. We got on super well. Um, and then, yeah, ended up getting the job, essentially – what they said was it was based on um, more like personality and 
they said that it was like between me and someone else. There was someone else that had all the right qualifications and could have hit the ground running, but they could tell that I kind of had like a thirst for it, like a hunger. And so that like, they wanted to take a risk, which, um, yeah, is obviously still, this is what, almost four years later, in fact, over four years later. And I'm still like, this is mental. Um, I can't really get my head around it, but obviously I'm like eternally grateful for it. Cause that was my foot in the door. And everything else from there is kind of, yeah, that's like the, that's year zero, sort of. So with Live Nation, what exactly was the role specifically? What were you doing? Because I assume it was somewhat different to what your role is now. Yeah, totally different to what I'm doing now. Um, So obviously Live Nation, for anyone who doesn't know, is entirely within the live sector. So it's shows, festivals, um, tours, stuff like that. I didn't actually work on festivals at that point. They'd already been shifted over to Festival Republic, where there's an entirely separate team. Um, but my job was actually a job role that had been created, which was um, PR and venue marketing assistant. So it was all it was a lot of like admin sort of stuff. Um, it was a lot of like uh, getting press releases to people, sending out posters to venues across the country. Like it was a lot of um, sort of dog's body stuff but it was a great insight into how a company of that size and stature works. And throughout my time there, I got to be involved with a lot of completely crazy stuff, like worked on stuff for U2, worked on stuff for Beyonce, worked on stuff for uh, Black Sabbath's final tour, um, a bunch of absolutely, you know, stuff that I never thought I'd get within three feet of. Um and it was super awesome. It was just like a nice way to experience it all um, without having that pressure of necessarily being directly in the firing line. Um, I also had the benefit of, uh, so whilst I was there, Charlie left to go to America and I got a new boss, which is a guy called Mohammed Kazelbash, who is an incredible PR um, and made a point of getting me more involved with the PR side of things. Um, which again, it was like, I wasn't necessarily directly the one that was handling all of that stuff, but it was an immense level of insight and to work with someone like him that had been working in the industry for like a few years already, um, in his own capacity was really cool. Um, and yeah, kind of just gave me that, uh, insight and that reassurance that I was, that what I was doing was what I wanted to be doing. And, uh, yeah, gave me like a whole bunch of knowledge that has been absolutely essential to what I've done since. So you were a guy that uh, took a chance on yourself, a massive chance and a really ballsy chance, he's got to admit, um, <laughs> to move away from home to London for three months and use up the savings that was for your university. Um, did three months in PR, then you all of a sudden somehow ended up at Live Nation, one of the most yeah. well-known uh, live <laughs> live companies, like in Europe at least. Um, yeah. So was there any point when you were sitting in the office and thinking, "Man, this is I can't do this. This this is just oh too much all the, of the time." Step up? Oh, for sure, I still get that today. Like I'm a constant sufferer of uh, imposter syndrome. Like uh, the entire time I was there, it was oh my god, this is the day they find out that they've hired the wrong person that, you know, they mixed up the paperwork and called the wrong guy or whatever. It was, it was super intimidating. Like it's a company of hundreds of people. There's offices in pretty much every country in the world, like working on the biggest shows. Um, 
it was yeah it was intimidating to say the least especially when I first started but that was kind of reassured by the fact that the team there are super supportive made up of some of the best people I've ever worked with um and also the people that I had leading me when I first started so again Charlie and Joe Young were incredible like they were aware of the fact that I hadn't done something like that before they made a point of letting me know that they often still felt that same way of oh no I shouldn't be doing this this is you know I'm out of my depth or whatever and it kind of gives you that um you know just it's just the reassurance you need to to keep going because um it it's also a company where I think in my last year there we did 1500 events in one year just in the UK which considering it was the entire PR team was one PR and then me as an assistant is kind of outrageous but you know it's super full-on but everyone's kind of in it together and that was quite nice you know places like live nation do get a, a fair bit of stick in this yeah, day and age. Sure. them ticket master etc where do you weigh in on, on this argument of uh, the ticket, <clears throat> ticket selling conglomerate that are able to do certain things that make it more difficult, arguably, for the consumer? That's a difficult yeah, one so for you. You haven't got to it. It is a weird you. one, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, I, I guess I'll put it this way. is that, um, A lot of what you have to get involved with when, you, when you're working in music, and it is a you're in it as a a job capacity. You're no longer just in it as a fan, as you do have to remember that it is a business. And you do have to remember that the thing that means we get all of these tours and these shows and albums and whatever is that someone is making money off it. Like, that's kind of just something you have to accept. Whether you like it or not, that's just how it goes. Um, and in regards to what you were saying there about... Um, ticket selling and stuff like that it's it's an ever-changing market and it's it's not something i was first-hand involved with so i can't really talk too much on how it all works or why it works the way it does but you know i think it's just a a case of um it being a business and of course when it's companies of that size there are people involved with it because it's a business and because it's lucrative um yeah you know of course there are times where i see things and i'm like I don't necessarily agree with that, but, um, you know, it's it's kind of just how it how it goes. So, you know, at Nuclear Blast, which are one of my favourite labels, and, uh, you know, whenever you're championing a band in my <clears> inbox, <throat> I'm always really open to work with them because uh, <laughs> you, be, you become one of those PRs that I really enjoy working with, and I, I legitimately trust you when you say this band is sick. If you don't listen to them, I'm going to fall out with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. When... The time must have come that you decided that it was time to move on. Uh, when and why? Um, yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. Um, I'd spent two years at Live Nation, and like I say, it was like it was an incredible place to work, but it was never that close to what I was passionate about. Um, it was super cool because, like I say, I got to work on things like Black Sabbath, um, which was mental and also worked on a bunch of stuff that, um, you know, if I'd gone straight into rock and metal, I would have never touched. And it also opened me up to a bunch of new artists and um, contacts and stuff that, you know, I definitely wouldn't have made otherwise. But at the root of it, 
And whenever anyone would ask me, why did you get into music? Why, do you, why have you done this? My, it always came back to um, the one thing I could always kind of zone in on was the immediate passion that made me, you know, when I was looking through all those music jobs and thinking, which of these can I do? Which of these am I suited for? PR stood out because it felt like a way that I could champion the stuff I really, really enjoyed and that I really loved. Um, and at the end of the day, the thing that is closest to my heart is metal and hardcore and rock and all of that sort of stuff. So it kind of just felt like the most sensible move to make. Um, and obviously nuclear blast is a label that it's a bit of a weird one. Actually, when I went for the job, um, I was obviously researching the label as much as I could and all this sort of stuff. And I wasn't quite aware of just how ever present they'd been in my, um, development as a music fan through the years everything from like Barry Tomorrow who are one of my sort of gateway bands into heavier stuff through like Die Artist Murder and then up to like Meshuggah and then stuff like Nails um and it just kind of like this overarching umbrella of like nuclear blast bands that had kind of led me through all of that um and yeah it just felt like a really logical move to make really um the roster is incredible like it's it's again still i've been there for almost again almost two years now and i look at that roster sometimes still and i'm just like i cannot believe we have these bands um so yeah it just felt like an opportunity i couldn't really pass up i guess you came across it you just surfing online and you happened to see the job list and you thought you know what i fancy a bit of this yeah i mean i would recommend to anyone that's in um working in music there's a couple of newsletters and stuff you can sign up to so you'll just get like um once a week or something you just get sent through jobs and it's always good to just keep an eye on stuff um like if you stagnate it's a risk of getting too comfortable and you lose that kind of fire that keeps you going but um yeah just be aware of things around you because you never know something might crop up that's like oh actually this seems like it could be a really good move and this was just one of those situations i guess so just talk to me about your fitting in period at Nuclear Blast because you'd come from a completely different sector of PR, I guess. For sure, and yeah. Now, and now all of a sudden <clears throat> you've gone from sorting out live shows, playing a part of that area, and now we are looking after bands and connecting them uh, to the press and outer world. Yeah. So uh, how, how did that fitting in period work? Um, it was really bizarre, uh, if I'm honest. Um, so at Live Nation, like I said, it was the entire PR team was one uh pr and me assisting them and the way we would work on things is we get given a show by someone to be like here's this cool opportunity to do something and then we'd work it for like a week two weeks get as much stuff as we could do with it and then we'd move on to something else because there was so much coming through the door you had to try and redirect your focus constantly um the difference at nuclear blast is that uh i now work on album campaigns um so I have a, we have our roster, which is split in two between me and uh, Claire Harris, who's the other publicist. Um, so we have a, about 95 bands each, which is kind of ludicrous. Um, and we're technically working all of those bands all the time. But as you can imagine, quite often those bands are out of cycle or they're on hiatus or, you know, they're just laying low for a few months or whatever. So the stuff we focus on is bands that are releasing records. Um, and it's entirely different to how I was working at Live Nation because you can develop an actual plan. 
you get given three to four months to work these records. So you are seeing it from the very beginning right through to the end when it's released and then even further through to like touring cycles and stuff. Um, and it gives you time to actually create strategies and research the bands and develop pitches and stuff like that, which was a side of PR that I'd missed out on at Live Nation to some extent and that I was really excited to delve into. And yeah, so it was super weird. Like it was a big juxtaposition. But um, again, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a bunch of really great people, Claire Harris in particular, who just kind of gave me a helping hand through everything because it was, I mean, still to this day, there's a lot of questions I ask of, should I be doing this in this way? Should I be approaching this like this? And they're always there to, you know, give me the reassurance or tell me what I'm doing is completely wrong. Um, and I think without that, it would have been way harder because there's not really like a warm up period when you start somewhere like nuclear blast, we release so much stuff. You kind of just have to jump in at the deep end and see if you can swim. Um, which luckily I've kind of managed to stay somewhat afloat, but, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy, but it's, it's, I've got there slowly. <laughs> <laughs> when nuclear blast <clears throat> just signed a new band, is yeah. it, it, for your specific role, is it like a, a nudge on, on your shoulder and be like, hey, we signed this new band, um, listen to them to the ends of the earth, so you know everything about them, and then come up with a campaign for them so that we can get them out to as much press as we can, cheers. Is that pretty much how um, it works? Sort of, yeah. So Nuclear Blast is, so we actually work on three different labels. Um, so Nuclear Blast is kind of the parent label. And then within that, we've also got Sharp Tone Records, which is a US-based label, which um, deals in stuff like Loathe, Holding Absence, uh, Bleeding well, Through, yeah. Polaris, yeah, loads of really cool stuff coming through there. And we've also got another label called Rising Empire, which is based in Germany, um, which is more sort of like, it's a bit more varied, but it tends to sit within kind of like hard rock and the more kind of Euro metalcore stuff. Yeah. Um, so when a new band signs to us, uh, we get told about it by our boss, uh, just, you know, heads up, we've signed this band. Uh, sometimes it's a case of we sign a band and they have an album that's announcing in a week. Sometimes it's a case of like, for instance, fit for an autopsy. We signed at the start of last year and only start uh, their record doesn't come out until next month or the month after next month. Uh, so obviously that's, you know, a, a whole year and year and a half between when we sign them to when the record comes out. Um, the way it normally works is we'll get told about a band and then between Claire and myself, we can decide who wants to work it. You, sometimes it's a case of one of us being an absolute diehard fan of the band and being like, please, can I work this? Um, sometimes it's just a case of, cool, we've got another band come through. Like, are you, have you got the time to take it on? Cause we're both super, um, you know, we've got, a heavy workload quite a lot of the time so it's just you know who makes the most sense to take it on who can give it the most attention um and then from there it's a case of we'll get sent um like assets so we'll get sent like a bio about the band with a little bit of history we'll get sent the record we'll get sent artwork press shots kind of just like a starter pack on how to uh you know everything you you need to know about this band on this particular album cycle and then from there, we're kind of free to approach it in whichever way we want. So obviously, it's a band we already know. Then, like, Fit for an Autopsy was one for me. I was like, gimme. Um, and I already know quite a lot about that band's history. I've 
been seeing them for, for years, like listened to a bunch of their records. So I was like, kind of know where they came from, kind of know where they're going. Uh, but then we get bands signing to us that we've never heard of. And at that point, you might be like, okay, cool. I'm going to look into this band, see who they've toured with, see what festivals they've done, read some live reviews, read some reviews for previous records. Just try and get your head around it a bit. Um, and just, you know, try and familiarize yourself with what they're about, um, what they're, you know, the, the direction they're looking to go in. Because, uh, you know, a lot of these bands change their sound with different records and whatever. Um, and just try and get to a point where you feel comfortable with what they are and who it would appeal to, I guess. Do you <clears throat> prefer taking on a band like Holding Absence, who will absolutely be huge, and being part of their first wildfire spread to the mainstream or uh, to, to press in general? Or do you prefer to take a band that are already, you know, already have a, a quite a large fan base and being a part of their next chapter? Yeah, that's a good one, actually. Um it's a, like, I guess it's not really like a preferential thing. They kind of both have their appeal. Um, but the band like Holding Absence, that was really awesome. Because like you say, they're this really promising young band that have the potential to spread far and wide. And the cool thing there is you get to be a bit more creative with how you pitch things and where you pitch to. And um, because, you know, there's this, they're almost like a, I kind of hate the term, but they're a bit of like a hype band. Yeah. Um, they've got all this attention and, you know, they're doing something really cool. But then also like, you know, getting to work on something like Creator or like Thy Art is Murder, who I did recently. I've been a fan of Thy Art is Murder for six, seven years at this point. And purely from the perspective of being a fan of that band, it was like, this is surreal. That's like, that's the thing when you're getting into music, you're like, man, imagine if I got to work with X, Y, Z. So the times when it does get to happen, is like crazy. Um, it's super, super cool. And, you know, often those bands, like you say, they are established. They have their people within the industry that are fans or whatever. And that's quite cool to be able to hit up that stuff. And like, you know, quite often the more developed bands you can get bigger things with because obviously they've got bigger fan bases and they've been going for however long and they've done more. But, um, yeah, it's a very different thing, I think. Like, working with those younger bands is super cool because you feel like you're kind of in the eye of the storm a little bit. Um, but then again, working with those developed bands that have been doing it for years, like, it's, it just feels like an honour. Like, it's a really nice experience to get to tackle stuff alongside some of those bands that have been, um, you know, doing this for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever. Where do you see yourself heading in the music industry? Like, do you feel like you're cemented in there and this could be you for the next 30, 40 years? Um, I don't know, really. Like, I think one of the things I like about music is that it's quite open. Um, you're never really pigeonholed into one particular thing. Like, if you're a PR and suddenly you, five years into your career, you were like, I'm done with PR, like, this is enough for me. I want to go and be a band manager or I want to go and be an agent or something. There is room to do that. Like, it's a small enough industry that pretty much everyone knows everyone. Um, it's a super tight-knit community of people that are going to have your back and, you know, it gives you that freedom to try new things. And I really like that. Um, for the time being, PR is absolutely where I see myself. It's something that I find really rewarding. 
and kind of consistently challenging, which is nice. Um, but in what capacity I want to DPR, I don't know. Again, it, I could see myself at Nuclear Blast for years to come from this point. But also something might crop up that I think is an opportunity, again, that I can't really miss out on for whatever reason. And I might just jump at that. But it's, yeah, the kind of, the, what I always say to people is that it's, it's never like a set thing. I don't have like a, in 10 years, I see myself in this place. Um, there's part of me that would love to work within a major for one of the subsidiary labels, somewhere like Music for Nations or Spine Farm, who have been doing incredible things for so long. Um, there's a part of me that would like to go independent and work with smaller up and coming bands, um, which is probably the the stuff that really kind of spikes my passion. Um, but yeah, it's again, Nuclear Blast, like it's nice because it kind of runs the gamut of like new, fresh stuff like Holding Absence and Loathe and, you know, whoever else, Polaris, Polar, um, all the way through to these bands that have been with us for decades, like Meshuggah and Overkill and Creator and stuff. Like it's it's a nice uh, mix. But um, yeah, we'll see really. Um, I'm kind of open, I guess. I asked Brady from Conjurer about this on the show a few weeks yeah. ago. Uh, where do you stand <clears throat> on streaming music? Because it it's become very pertinent at the moment discussing uh, how much artists get paid from streaming is it good for the industry is it bad for the industry mm -hmm. you're a pr uh, you play a large part in the cycle of a band's album when it first comes out uh, what music streaming what are your thoughts man um so first of all as a fan i kind of think it's both the best and worst things that could happen to music um it's the best in the sense that uh, you have this entire new generation of people that are kind of completely open-minded. Um, you no longer have those tropes of people being set in their little boxes and being like, they're the Mosha kids, they're the goth kids, they're the indie kids, like they're the pop kids, whatever. It's like everyone likes a bit of everything. Um, everyone's open to stuff. You can see that through the fact that, I mean, Ozzy Osbourne just did guest vocals on a Post Malone song. That would not have happened in any other era. Um, and I think that's a legitimately exciting and cool thing. Um, it's also led to the development of entirely new genres, stuff like PC music, where you've got like Sophie and Igloo Ghost and whatever else that I think without this kind of immediate um, and instant way of accessing music would never have been able to really develop. Um, I also kind of think it's a terrible thing because it drives people away from the experience of an album, which is something I've always been a big fan of, like... There are certain records that, well, I mean, I'm someone, 90% of the music I listen to, I listen to full albums. Um, and there are certain records that I can only ever listen to as an album. Um, and I do think something's like, you know, you always hear these people say like, what's a record you can listen to without skipping over a track? And that to me is the most alien concept, like that you'd listen to a full album and then skip a track. Seems bizarre. Um but I understand that it is a thing and I feel like it's kind of as much as people are open to genre, they're less open to spending time with records and spending time with music to um, try and, you know, get into it from a business side of things as a PR. Again, it's great because you can develop a band uh, in terms of audience super quickly. 
um, because a band like Holding Absence, who have come out of Wales, who in days gone by would have had to work their way up in their local scene and then breaking out of that into Wales and then into the UK, that takes years and years and years and years. Being able to put your music online instantly and have anyone anywhere in the world be able to stream that is incredible. Like it's it's an invaluable asset. Um, but of course, the issue is bands don't make money off streaming anymore. Like bands don't really make money off their records. That's kind of just a fact. Um, and it is a shame because that's, you know, where they're spending most of their time. It's where they're putting their own money in for most of it. Um, you know, some of these bands spend months and months and months writing records, further months recording them. And then there's the entire process of them doing interviews and doing their press shots and getting the artwork designed and everything. It's an entire thing. And for the most part, these bands don't make any money off them. Um, all of that money comes from touring these days. And I do think it's a shame, um, but it's also not something that I think is ever going to change now. I think that's just how it is. And we need to find a way of, you know, being able to maintain these bands' careers. Um, and like I say, touring seems to be that, that um, the way that it's going, um, which is cool. Because again, like live music for me at least is the um, is kind of the purest and best way to experience music. But we'll see. It's it's kind of exciting because it's uh, causing people within the industry to to drive towards finding new ideas and experimenting with things and trying new things, which is really cool. Because you know, as within the music itself, innovation is amazing. I think within the business around it, having that innovation is really cool. But, it, you know, it's also a little bit uh, leaves everything a little bit uneasy because we don't really know which direction everything's heading. Um, so, yeah, there's positives and negatives to it for sure. But uh, I think it's one of those things that at this point is is just a fact. It's, you know, we just have to accept it. I think music is one of those industries that's done an amazing <clears> job <throat> of like consistently reinventing itself. Yeah. Because yeah. my, my dad said to me before that when CDs started becoming a thing, people were like, no way, I'm going to listen to cassettes for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> CDs going to kill the industry. We need yeah. cassettes, man. And eventually, <clears throat> like, time moves and CDs are, like, the in thing. Um, vinyl's making a comeback. I, I've actually just started getting a vinyl collection because I've said it on the show several times that, like, my PS4 doesn't play uh, CDs. My new laptop hasn't got a CD drive. It's like... Yeah. I'd buy a CD literally to spend £10 for no reason. So I, I started getting a vinyl collection so it's like I can buy the album and, and enjoy uh, the, having it on vinyl which is more of a collector's item. For sure, and, yeah. And just to reiterate your point, like Brady was saying to me, he's like, he's like, mate, we've got fans in Sweden. He's like, mate, yeah. we, we're never going to get fans in Sweden in 1999. <laughs> it's, just, exactly. it's, like, it's just not going to be a thing for us. It couldn't <clears> be done. Um, so I think you know i completely agree with your point like the the industry will move forward and will reinvent itself and in 10 years we'll be talking about something else that threatens music and we'll have to get to grips with that as well of course yeah it's always been a thing it always will be a thing but music is one of those things it's it's really nice especially i think this is super prevalent within rock and metal which is one of the things that drew me towards it initially is that um <clears throat> even on a level that we're operating on a nuclear blast it's still all done out of passion Everyone that works for our label is doing it because they are diehard, passionate about music. 
all of the bands we have signed are making music because they are passionate about music. Um, and so I think that means even even if, God forbid, the entire music industry crumbled next week, you'd still have bands playing. You'd still have it would still exist in some form. It would survive. It would just be in a new form, you know? I have taken up nearly an hour of your time, dude. So I am going to uh, finish <laughs> finish off with a final question for you. Sure. Um, it, this has been a, a really fascinating insight for me to just get... Cause mm-hmm. you, you're the first... I, I've met you uh, once, uh, but when yeah. you, you, you helped us uh, with Thy Art Is Murder. Um, but I didn't really get a chance to like stop and talk to you for a second because I had a million questions for you, which is why I've done this. <laughs> um, for the people listening that are like, man, you know what? I'd love to, to be in PR with music. Uh, first of mm-hmm. all, do you have to live in london and second of all uh, what advice would you give uh first of all about london you definitely don't have to but it it's a huge help um unfortunately especially with pr it is a thing where the vast majority of um music companies whether that be labels independent pr agencies whatever else are all based in london because you know it's just easier if everything's in one spot but saying that there are companies in Leeds, there are companies in Bristol, there are companies in Manchester, Birmingham, like you can find them. They do exist. It will be a bit harder, but it's it's not worth giving up on just because you live somewhere else. Um, regards to the best ways to kind of get into it, kind of just find ways to be involved with music. Um, you can put on shows, you can write a blog, start a podcast whatever it is you do something to get your name out there start connecting with other people that work in music other writers bands prs managers anyone and everyone you can connect with them on social media i'm anyone that knows me knows i spend 90 percent of my life tweeting nonsense um (laughs) but twitter is also how i've met a huge amount of people that work in music um and built some legitimate lasting and working relationships through social media um essentially just be out there don't be afraid to put yourself forward for things um and yeah just do anything and everything you can um and just jump at opportunities because they sadly don't come up that that often dude this has been genuinely fascinating in fact actually of all of all the interviews that i've done on this show this has probably been like the most interesting man because this is a side of the industry that i doubt this is a side of the industry that like I want to say 95% of the people that I know on earth didn't know this side yeah. of the industry until now. Um, so thank thank you for coming on, man. I can't wait to work with you uh, on the next band, whichever that might be. I'm always interested yeah. now because I trust your opinion, which I'm <laughs> sure you must be so proud that Chris Pugh trusts your opinion on Honestly, music. Honestly, you have um, no idea. Dude, this has meant a lot to me, man. Thank you for being on the show. This, yeah, it's been amazing. Thanks for having me, man. Take care, man. Cheers. <laughs>